suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion Every second week, it's a little panel discussion with myself and Joe and Shay, and every other week, we try and do something a little bit different, and that's what we've got in store for you this time, something a little bit different. I got approached from the uh, Socialist Equality Party, who asked to come onto the podcast and uh, talk about what they're up to, so uh, they're here. We have uh, Max Body and Oscar Grenfell from the Socialist Equality Party, and we're going to talk about... um, what the party's about and what they're up to. So first of all, Max, uh, welcome aboard. Thanks for coming along. Thank you very much, Trevor. And also Oscar, thanks for coming along. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So um, I've been reading a bit of their blurb on the website. And uh, so the Socialist Equality Party is standing Senate candidates in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland in the election this Saturday. And it's to advance a socialist program of action for workers to fight for their class interests against the relentless assault on their basic social and democratic rights. Who could not be in favour of that, I ask you? So um, before we get into the weeds of exactly what the Socialist Equality Party is about, and I'm keen to see how close they are to communism, um, before we do that, why don't we start off and just uh, a bit of a life story. Maybe, Max, if you could start off, it's not uh, every day that somebody ends up as Assistant National Secretary of the Socialist Equality Party. So what's your life story that got you to this point? Well, Trevor, when I was 18, it was 2007, uh, and uh, at that time I came from quite a Labor voting family. Uh, all the ills that kind of confronted mankind, I was told, was because the coalition was in power. And so uh, in 2007, as with a whole other layer of, uh, of young people, I voted for Kevin Rudd. I voted on the basis that he would end uh, the wars in the Middle East, that uh, they would stop the imprisonment of asylum seekers, uh, and that it would improve, uh, you know, dramatically improve the conditions of Aboriginal people in Australia all of which didn't happen. Uh, And so over the course of the next few years, I began to seek out and look for an alternative. I'd heard of socialism. Uh, The way it was taught at school was that it's a great idea but only works in theory. But I concluded, well, capitalism isn't working in practice. Uh, And so then at university in 2010, I met the uh, International Youth and Students for Social Equality, which is the student arm of the Socialist Equality Party, and, uh, and they explained to me that the way forward uh, is for international revolutionary socialism. Above all, explain that the conditions facing 
the Aboriginal working class, uh, that of uh, asylum seekers, was a class question. Uh, and that the way for that to be resolved, as I said, was through the working class taking power. It also offered an internationalist perspective that the problems facing mankind could not be resolved within a single country, but through the unity of the working class across continents uh, and an ending of the nation-state system of which capitalism rests. Uh, so that was the process in which I came into contact with the party. Um, from there, I joined in 2011. Uh, and then from then, from then on, uh, you know, been a member of the party, uh, worked closely uh, with comrades both in uh, Australia and internationally. Uh, and so that's, you know, in that sense, my process towards yep. becoming a socialist. Yep. And did you end up finishing whatever you were studying at university? Did you? Yeah, that's well, right. I right. finished did a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Newcastle, yep. major in film, media and cultural studies and Aboriginal studies. So Very good. graduate. And 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 Oscar, your your life story. How did you end up where you are? Yeah, so I met the Socialist Equality Party in two thousand and seven. I was still in high school at, at the time. There were two elections that year. There was a, a New South Wales state election and also a federal election. Actually, the one that Max just referenced when Howard was ousted and uh, Rudd came in. I think. You know, being a high school student, I, the first conscious political memory I really have uh, is of the September 11 attacks and then what followed those, you know, which was the invasion and occupation of uh, Afghanistan in 2001. And then I think, you know, what really had a big impact on me was the invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, a dirty war based on lies transparently aimed at securing control of oil uh, I knew there'd been mass opposition, you know, expressed in international demonstrations, uh, but yet the war had gone ahead and was continuing uh, four years later. And I think uh, at that time, 2007, you had the sort of strange death of the anti-war movement. It was all being wound up. Uh, and in this country, many of those who had protested the war were supporting Kevin Rudd, um, despite the fact that Labor is a pro-war party uh, and had backed both the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. In the United States, similar layers were preparing to back uh, Barack Obama, you know, who, who ran as a candidate of hope and change uh, and ended up being at war for his two terms in office. So I think, you know, I was politi politically radicalised by the issues of war and I was looking for a, a genuine anti-war organisation, but one which was able to explain the roots of, of conflict. Um, and as the SEP went through, I mean, this was not just an issue of uh, individual leaders, Bush, Howard, or whatever else. Uh, this was bound up with definite geostrategic interests of US imperialism, its allies, and it really posed the need for an international anti-war movement of the working class, which I found very attractive, uh, as well as the ability of the party to explain some of the big historical issues of, of the 20th century. Um, so I joined in 2008. I completed a Bachelor of Arts at, at the University of, of Sydney, um, and now I write for our website, the World Socialist website. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, okay, so Socialist Equality Party, the word socialist, um, it's it's putting you behind the eight ball to start with because we've been indoctrinated, if you like, 
with uh, a sense that socialism is evil, that they'll take everything off you, uh, you'll end up in some sort of Stalinist-type society, if you like. So um, so this, this sort of this aim of ending the capitalist profit system um, What's your how, how's that how's that going to be brought about? Um, why should it? And just sort of explain that aim to me, if you could, either one of you, Max or Oscar. The ending of the capitalist profit system can only be done through revolution, and that means the conscious entry into struggle by uh, the working class internationally. I mean, we base ourselves off the lessons of history above all the October Revolution of nineteen seventeen. Our party is Trotskyists. Uh, you know, Trotsky fought against uh, the degeneration under Stalinism, uh, fought for international socialism that had been established by uh, the Bolshevik Party prior to the uh, October 1917. Uh, and you know, on that basis, it was required of the development of the consciousness of the working class in this country and internationally. And I think you're beginning to see the developments of the re-emergence of the class struggle uh, in countries around the world, including in Australia. The fact that we've had you know, mass strike action uh, in this country over the last few months, both with nurses, teachers, uh, there's been bus drivers, uh, there's uh, been you know, other health workers, um, just to name a few. You have a situation in which there is uh, the kind of intolerable conditions that are created by capitalism, which is not an aberration. What is occurring now is not because of some corrupt parliament or corrupt individuals. The nature of capitalism is the continued deepening of the exploitation of the working class for the transfer of wealth to the top end of society. Uh, and that process, uh, which has uh, been deepened, particularly in the last three decades uh, since the fall of the USSR, it's been utilised to kind of reel back all of the gains that had been previously made, as as small as they as they were in a previous period, uh, which is you know now confronting millions of workers worldwide. I think it is interesting just to make a point. Uh, certainly, there is much historical falsification that must be worked through. There is no question. Uh, I mean, the question of Stalinism, which in itself uh, you know is something that must be tackled. In almost every discussion, uh, because you know, at one stage, both uh, the Stalinist bureaucracy as well as the capital, uh, you know, capitalist or imperialist system, put forward that Stalin uh, and and the degeneration in the Russian uh, in Russia was the uh, outcome of the of the October Revolution, which you know, it was not the inevitable outcome of the October Revolution, uh, and as I said, Trotsky and the left opposition proves that, but. There is now, I think one can say, a, a renewed interest in these essential questions. Um, there was, there have been some polls recently, certainly in 2018, I think it was in Australia, there was a poll that showed that uh, uh, young people, particularly millennials, nearly 60% were in favour of socialism. In the United States, in which anti-communism is essentially a state religion and has been for decades, um, there's, was, there has been a continued uh, rise in hostility above all to capitalism. I think, again, it was last year there was a statistic around 60% of the respondents said that, you know, they were hostile to capitalism. So certainly 
there is no question that there is a um, uh, there is a history that needs to be clarified. But I think, as Oscar said about his development towards the party, it was the same with mine. It was the clarification of those essential historical questions: what is socialism? What is communism? What was Stalinism? Uh, which which certainly um, is what we fight to do, and uh, in in all of our discussions with workers, young people, uh, and and those that we're speaking to. Um, and I mean, as I said, look, the other aspect I, I'll point to with the question of capitalism is that it also leads to war, uh, to world war. I mean, it was capitalism that gave rise to the wars at the beginning of the 20th century, the first and second world wars, and it's now capitalism today, uh, led above all by US imperialism, but supported by its allies in Europe and Australia, that is now pushing for war against Russia, but also China which could very much lead the world to nuclear catastrophe. Um, so that's, that's to begin yep. to answer the question. So, yep. So how far, when you talk about um, sort of breaking down the capitalist system, uh, I think many people would look at, say, the billionaires that are roaming the planet at the moment with far too much power as a, as a dangerous phenomena and something must be done. But they would also see, you know, small to medium business uh, as capitalism, that is a good thing, if you like. So in your mind, when you say um, uh, sort of breaking down that, that capitalist system, how, how far are you breaking it down? I mean, you, clearly you want to, I guess, remove billionaires, but do you want to remove small to medium business as well? Is everything owned by the state? Uh, is a Scandinavian style of democratic socialism good enough? Just I'm, I'm interested in how far you guys are prepared to, to go along there. I can make a couple of points on that if you'd like. I mean, just quickly, I'd like to wrap just make a couple of brief points on on your previous question. I mean, the issue of why socialism, well, because capitalism is in uh, a massive breakdown and is heading towards catastrophe. I mean, what have been the experiences of the past two years? I mean, we have a global pandemic uh, which has claimed more than 6 million lives officially based on excess deaths. The best estimates are that 20 million people have lost their lives in the space of two years. That's a death toll that's really only comparable to world war, and this was entirely preventable. I mean, governments around the world have rejected the necessary safety measures to eliminate transmission, to end the pandemic, uh, because such measures would interfere with production uh, and the profit-making activities of the corporations. We've seen that here with the let-it-rip policies embraced by Labor and the Liberals, especially since December. Um, but what, what's been revealed is really the incompatibility of the most basic social interests of working people, including to health and life itself, with a society dominated by corporate profit. Um, as Max referenced, you know, we're three years into a pandemic and now we have the threat of nuclear war. I mean, you have an active shooting war in Europe, which is not a regional Eastern European conflict. Um, it's a US-NATO proxy war directed against Russia, uh, and there's a very real threat that uh, this will involve nuclear weapons. So there are enormous 
are crises that confront the working class, war, um, unending pandemic, authoritarianism, uh, and also the onslaught on social conditions. I see in the chat there's reference to the cost of living, which is just uh, completely unbearable for millions of, of ordinary people. So I think the question, you know, under these conditions is really which class uh, rules society and in whose interests is society organised? Um, what we put forward is, is a socialist perspective and what that means is the working class, which produces all of society's wealth, uh, democratically controlling it, allocating it to meet social needs, uh, not private profit. In terms of concrete policies, um, certainly we advocate placing the banks and the major corporations under public ownership uh, and democratic workers' control. We think they should be run for the benefit of society, not to enrich Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk uh, and their counterparts in this country. Um, I guess, in terms so, of small, so just if I could just yeah, interrupt, so, so things like major mining companies, banks, um, I don't know, the, the, the very, are you talking just the very large um, companies here or are, are you also talking the smaller ones that are maybe 50, 100 employees? Like what, what, what are you know, where, where where does it stop? Where do you say, oh, it's okay for a, a, that sort of limited form of capitalism and, and where does it become something where uh, the, the working class has to take ownership of it, if you like? Yeah, well, I mean, returning to the Russian Revolution, I mean, what Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, raised was the necessity for the commanding heights of the economy uh, to be placed under the control of the working class. So you're talking about the massive banks, which really dominate uh, the world's economy, the enormous corporations, certainly mining, uh, logistics, telecommunications, uh, and the like, as well as large-scale industry. Um, but we're not talking about, you know, the government taking over corner stores or even medium-sized uh, businesses. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, in terms of the plight of small business owners, um, under the profit system, they face enormous difficulties. Uh, I mean, they're constantly squeezed by the banks. You know, if they want credit, they're charged um, massive interest rates. You know, a workers' government, uh, which placed the banks, the corporations under public ownership and workers' control, would extend, you know, credit on favourable terms to small businesses to promote the development of the economy, you know, as part of the broader reorganisation of society uh, to meet social needs, the needs of workers, uh, layers of the middle class and the oppressed. So how would you transition from a situation where these large corporations, mining companies or whatever, are owned by um, a number of, you know, a number of shareholders, but, you know, a billionaire owning a lot of the shares, but also lots of individual shareholders, how do you transition ownership to the working class, if you like, um, out of the hands? How, how would that happen? Uh, Trevor, that's through the process of revolution. Right. It can't happen through the parliament, can't happen through you know, these other various means. I mean, the workers need to seize the means of production. Some of the organisational forms in which workers can 
put forward their own independent interests is the formation of various rank and file committees uh, made up of workers, uh, which you know, can hold democratic discussions on how uh, resources can be allocated and distributed. And that's why part of our call in this election is the call for a formation of rank and file committees in various industries and then an international workers' alliance of rank and file committees. And for that step to be taken forward by workers, they need to break with the various organisations that are suppressing the class struggle and have historically in this country. So that is the trade unions and the Labor Party in particular who have, you know, the trade unions who have transformed into the industrial policemen of the working class who have organised sellout deals uh, after sellout deal, EBAs in which wages are well below inflation. Uh, there's a reason that there has been decades of stagnating wages and deteriorating job conditions. This didn't fall from the sky but was orchestrated by the union bureaucracy that exists at an entirely different level to the workers that they supposedly represent and has been overseen above all by the Labor Party, particularly in the period of the Hawke and Keating governments in which you saw the largest uh, drop in corporate taxes and, and taxes to the wealthy elite and you saw a transformation of the unions through the accords uh, in which, you know, strike action was both limited and unified strike action was essentially made illegal, which was very much codified above all in the Rudd's um, Fair Work Act in 2007. So, you know, in terms of the, the, the process, I mean, these independent rank and file committees uh, take control of the means of production through, you know, conscious revolution. It can't be done, you know, through parliament or a vote or, you know, a, a process mm. like that. I don't know that Australia is ready for a chaotic revolution. Like things have to be really bad in a country, really bad before people are ready for a revolution. I would have thought. I, I just think you're so far away from people being ready for that sort of thing. I think you've got a situation where people are recognising the uh, shortfalls of capitalism, and in particular, the sort of where there's a true monopoly power by powerful interests. Um, but even beyond that, just just a a power that comes from just such accumulated wealth, I think people are ready to um, try and rein in that power. But I, I, you know, things are too good in Australia for the for the majority of people. And I know you know there's any number of people um, finding it tough now with cost of living, etc. But the notion of actually workers' committees taking over an enterprise, confiscating the, the, the factory or the farm or the mine site and, and the associated bank accounts and all the rest of it, it, it seems impossible in my mind. Am I? I mean, that's been the dominant ideology in Australia for, you know, since Federation, Australian exceptionalism, the idea that Australia is somehow accepted uh, you know, the exception to the international uh, developments and, uh, you know, and rules that are, that are being carried out. Mm. I mean, the truth of the matter is, far from, I think, Australia being this great lucky country, the majority of Australians are facing, as I said, intolerable working conditions and a situation in which making ends meet is becoming more and more impossible. Mm. Uh, I mean, throughout this uh, campaign, we've been speaking to 
uh, students, workers, teachers, nurses, and many others who have told us, I mean, just how intolerable the conditions are, whether it be working, you know, 12, 16-hour workdays uh, in, the, in the hospitals in which COVID is rife, you see COVID in non-COVID wards, the risks of taking that home and the risks of, you know, getting children getting infected, the schools, which with the reopening of face-to-face -face schooling have been turned really into petri dishes for COVID. Um, I mean, we spoke to one uh, respiratory uh, laboratory researcher who said that it's safer in his workplace than it is at home because his children are more likely to bring COVID home than he is, you know, working in a lab that deals with respiratory diseases. So COVID is having a profound impact on the consciousness of millions and it's exacerbating conditions that were that existed prior to the impact of COVID. Uh, that is, you know, the accelerating uh, levels of social inequality, uh, which, I mean, one can point to the fact that over the course of the pandemic, the top 250 richest Australians uh, for the from 2020 to 2021 increased their combined wealth by $150 billion, while workers faced, I mean, rising inflation to the point now where whilst the, the number is 5.1%, the reality is goods and services and food, fuel, I mean, they're well over 6% whilst wages, you know, have, have stagnated and really gone backwards. So I would say that the kind of living conditions of the majority of workers in this country are not so rosy, but uh, are rather becoming more and more intolerable. Mm. Okay. So certainly I think statistics would show over the last three decades, for example, where there's been productivity increases, that the the benefits of that of those productivity increases have gone to the owners of capital, if you like, and wages have been stagnant. So I think there'd be a lot of people who would say the workers need a bigger share of, of uh, what society is generating in terms of its wealth. I just think it's another leap entirely to, to revolt and to, and to completely overthrow a system. But um, just um, so when you look at, say, like I've got an idealised view of uh, sort of Scandinavian Nordic countries. Um, where I have this image of, um, uh, in terms of inequality, um, a much more equal society where we don't have, or it seems to me where the, the houses are sort of much more uniform in sense of value and people's wages are, are closer together and the disparity that we have in, in uh, say, Australia or the US doesn't exist. There's a more even distribution um but there's still a capitalist element there where enterprises are owned by people it's just that they get taxed a lot for example um that that's not enough um in your view like they seem to me to be societies that are operating fairly well i think of iceland and places like that um but for you that's that doesn't address it enough is, is that right yeah, I mean, I think if one actually looks at these countries, there's a great deal of mythology surrounding the so-called Nordic model. I mean, certainly there was a welfare state in the post-World War II period, as there were in uh, numbers of other countries, including here to an extent. But what we've seen, and we've written on this on the World Socialist website, is 
in Scandinavia as elsewhere. I mean, you have growing social polarisation. I mean, you reference Iceland. I mean, its banking system collapsed in 2008. Uh, there were all sorts of uh, questions of financial impropriety, but the same, you know, speculative uh, financial activities which resulted in the, the crisis in the United States and globally of 2007-8. I mean, I just point out two other aspects of, of that region. I mean, one is that you do have a rise of far-right and fascistic organisations uh, in countries such as Sweden uh, and others neighbouring it, um, actively promoted by sections of the ruling elite. And they're also very much uh, integrated into this US-led war drive against Russia. Mm -hmm. They're noting on the, our website uh, the moves for Sweden to uh, drop its stated military neutrality and to openly join NATO. Finland is heading in the same uh, direction. So I think there's not, you know, a sort of national exception as hard as one tries to find, um, you know, an alternative within capitalism. There just isn't one. I mean, what we're looking at, you know, is a, an immense crisis on a global scale. And we're warning that if you look at the what's taking place and the experiences of the 20th century, I mean, there are really two solutions. I mean, the capitalist solution is world war, you know, a turn to fascism and authoritarianism, which we're also seeing in many countries. Um, the alternative is the fight for the working class to unite internationally uh, in a common struggle to abolish the capitalist system. And I think this point about revolution, you know, whether it, it's possible in a country such as Australia. Um, first of all, you know, if you look at what's taking place, I mean, Australia is um, completely dominated by global developments and the COVID pandemic, the let it rip policies, the onslaught on working conditions and the soaring uh, cost of living, and also the issue of, of war. Um, Australia has actively supported uh, the US-led war against Russia, and it's also on the front lines of, of the preparations for conflict with, with China. Um, so far from being, you know, down under and isolated from global developments, um, Australia is, is very central to global, you know, political processes. Um, and the working class, you know, has to, has to take stock of that. I think, sorry, just the last point I'd make as well is that revolution occurs when, you know, the social needs of masses of people can't be met within the existing political framework and social order. And I think that's what we see now. I mean, there's many people who raise, why are the billionaires so wealthy? Um, why is there such a yawning chasm between the rich and the poor? If you look at this election, I mean, there's not a single party, Labor, the Liberals, the Greens, or any of the independents uh, proposing a single policy which is going to resolve this. Um, I mean, you know, just... Mm. One example, if you look at the question of, of wages, um, Morris and the coalition are explicit that they won't even consider lifting the minimum wage. Um, Albanese won't commit to it. You know, he says, I will think about it. Um, mm. But in reality, you know, what's being prepared is a further onslaught on social spending to pay for national debt, which is now approaching a trillion dollars, um, and also pro-business restructuring, which is what's being clamoured for uh, in the financial press. Mm, yep. Um, I'll get back to the foreign affairs bit in a moment, but just just backtracking and so we can finish with it, just on COVID, you guys are sort of quite hard line on, 
on saying that uh, what's happening at the moment in Australia is um, too much of uh, – it seems like you want a lot more restrictions in terms of COVID and, and, and you're advocating an elimination policy worldwide. Is, is that right? Um, whereas um, – and, and and sort of your argument is it's it's sort of the current uh, relaxations are motivated by the capitalist system in that people you know powerful capitalists want businesses to be back up and running so they're willing to run the risk of people's health to have their businesses generating profit. But I think there'd be a lot of people who are very much pro welfare state and and sort of anti capitalist who would still say, well, you know what, we've got the uh, vaccines now. Um, I just looked at some statistics, which was that um, I think in Australia there's currently just under 3,000 hospitalised, uh, 123 people in ICU and 32 people currently ventilated. And so, uh, you know, I've been quite in favour of the lockdowns that have occurred in different states um, as being necessary, but I think myself and a lot of other people would be at the point now where we think, um, young people have lives to live. They only have their youth for a short time. They need to be able to get out and about, travel, come back. Um, and given the effectiveness of the vaccines in terms of people uh, uh, you know, not dying as, as, as much as they were in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, really is elimination something that the cost of that in terms of our freedoms it seems to me to be you know, that's the cat's out the bag, the horse has bolted or any other metaphor I could think of. Um, I think you guys are on a bit of an extreme end on the on the COVID restriction end at the moment. Any response to that? Yeah, I can make some initial points. Mm. I think to COVID-19 and its rapid spread internationally is not in that sense a, nat a natural phenomenon, but a phenomenon of the direct policies pursued by capitalist governments internationally. Uh, this is a virus that is a pandemic in nature. And it's interesting just to make one point on Sweden. It was Sweden who pioneered the herd immunity model, the conception that you just mass infect the population and that they'll develop some immunity to uh, a disease that is constantly evolving and changing to break through immunities, to break through vaccines, such a homicidal uh, you know, policy has been embraced worldwide and the form that it now takes in particular is the so-called vaccine-only strategy, the conception that once you vaccinate the population, therefore it's okay to open everything up. Uh, the truth is COVID can be eliminated. Uh, we join with leading experts, health and science experts internationally, have put forward that because of the nature of this virus, which is a virus that is transmitted by from human to human it doesn't lay dormant like other viruses such as tuberculosis it can be eliminated through a process of using a series of different techniques in fact all of the arsenal that we have at our disposal lockdowns social distancing mask wearing vaccines can be implemented all at once to eliminate uh, the virus internationally such a process could be achieved in fact in just a few months if it was a coordinated international effort now, such an effort has not only uh, not been pursued internationally, it's now been openly rejected by every capitalist country, except, uh, except of course, for China. Uh, 
I mean, Australia was even an example uh, in the sense that the limited mitigation measures that were put in place in 2020 and 2021, or at least early 2021, uh, effectively reduced the number of cases to nearly zero in most states. Now you have a situation where far from the pandemic being over, there's an average of, I think, uh, 52,000 cases a day, somewhere in the vicinity of 40 deaths a day, uh, whilst, uh, you know, I mean, the number of deaths have more than doubled uh, this year from, uh, the number of deaths this year are more than double than the previous two years combined. Uh, you have a situation in which uh, this virus is being allowed to spread and will evolve. I mean, there's no question it will change and break through further with the, the vaccines. And the vaccines themselves are beginning to wane in their efficacy. I mean, what is being created is a crisis that will last generations. The other impact of the COVID-19 virus is long COVID, which there's only preliminary uh, evidence about, but even that evidence uh, is, is damning. And that evidence shows that people who get COVID-19 can suffer long COVID symptoms for uh, months, potentially years, potentially the rest of their life, even if they caught it and they had no symptoms, you can still get long COVID. Mm. It's, a, it's a virus that also attacks the brain and vital organs. You know, there's been reports of scarring on the heart, scarring on the lungs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not a, a friendly virus by any means. It's Omicron variant is not some milder variant. Uh, it is a, a highly contagious variant that now in itself is mutating more and more. So, yes, we fight for the elimination of COVID-19 in the interests of the working class. Uh, we say that, and because the other point, and I think this is critical, it's workers that have borne the brunt of the reopening agenda. Uh, it's workers, logistics workers, nurses, teachers, as we said before, who, you know, classrooms are petri dishes. They're the ones who are facing uh, mass infection and mass death. I mean, our children, well, the children of Australia, the children internationally are being turned into guinea pigs. Let's see what happens when a virus of this nature is exposed on children where they're infected and reinfected. And already there's indications that it's giving a higher likelihood of development of diabetes, a higher likelihood of developing other infectious diseases. So this is not a virus that can be lived with. This is a pandemic virus that must be stopped. It must be eliminated. So that is our position. Uh, and, you know, on the position that, you know, we, we must reopen for people's mental health, for people's sanity. Well, I mean, the number of now orphaned children, particularly in the UK and the United States, as a result of them bringing it home, them infecting their, uh, their primary caregivers, I mean, that has had a, you know, and will continue to have a monumental impact on the mental health of young people, uh, you know, through that process. And I think the final point, and, and just to make on this, is far from uh, even the official figures are far below what is really occurring. I mean, the World Health Organization published, I think it was in early May, that uh, taking into account excess deaths, the number of deaths worldwide from COVID, far from being, I think, uh, by December 2021 was nearly 6, uh, 6 5.7 million. It was, in fact, you know, pretty much treble the number at more than 15 million, nearly 16 million deaths worldwide between January 2020 and December 2021. So you're talking about uh, a level of death that has not been seen worldwide really uh, since the world wars. Uh, in this country in January, it also became the leading cause of death. Uh, it's also exacerbated the crisis in the hospitals 
in which uh, people are dying of uh, diabetes at a higher rate, of cancer, of, uh, of dementia and other things uh, that uh, as a result of the overworked hospitals. So, you know, those are just some of the points I'd make in regards to our elimination, our fight for elimination. Uh, and, and really, what has the capitalist governments worldwide proven? They've proven that no level of death is, is unacceptable for the continued profits of the rich. Because after the lockdown, you know, they promised and, and paid out literally trillions of dollars worldwide to big banks and corporations the pumping of more money in, you know, into the financial system that now has to be paid back by forcing workers back to work. And if you want, in that sense, if you want an example of what Marx said, that all profit is result of the extraction of surplus value of the working class, well, that's why everything must be reopened in order to make sure that that money is paid back for by the working class. So I'll make those initial points. Yeah, yeah. Oscar, do you want to add to that or...? Um, you know? Yeah, I agree with what uh, Max has raised. I think the question of the extent of, of death in this country is not widely known because it's it's barely reported. I mean, we've got a couple of figures here. I mean, if you look at the entire pandemic, so more than two years, there's been 7,872 deaths. 5,572 of those have been this year. That's four and a half months. So you're talking about an average of more than 40 people dying, you know, every single day of 2022. Uh, the past week there have been 307 deaths, which is up. That's an average of, of 44 a day. Um, and if you look globally, I mean, the United States, the official where, you know, many of the let it rip policies have been really pioneered, mm. um, that the death toll there is now uh, a million officially, but, you know, in terms of excess death, again, it's it's probably many times over. So I think what we've seen with the, the pandemic is really an attempt on the part of, of the capitalist ruling elites to condition the population to accept you know, mass illness, mass mass death. And mm. the point that uh, Max raised, you know, about new variants is is very opposite. I mean, what we've seen for the past two years is you know generally every five months, I believe it is, you have the emergence of a, a new variant. We're due one now. Um, and there's no reason to think that the next variant will be benign or, or whatever else. Um, there's every possibility that it will be vaccine resistant as Omicron partially is. Um, and so you have the, the prospect of really a pandemic in perpetuity. Uh, workers, students, young people being told that they have to accept the daily risk of, of catching a potentially deadly virus. Um, that's no sort of freedom or um, whatever else as it's presented in, in the corporate media. Really what it is is, you know, freedom for uh, the capitalists to exploit workers and to ensure that, you know, they can make as much profit as possible. And that that's the agenda really of all of the parties standing in this election. That's why the pandemic is never mentioned by... Uh, Morrison, Albanese, the Greens, really any of them, mm. they all support, you know, this live with the virus line um, in the interests of, of the corporations. And the corollary, just the last point, the corollary of that, and it's very clear if you read the Australian Financial Review, uh, the Australian and the like, is that we need to reopen the economy, keep it open no matter what happens, and then we need to restructure. So we need to deepen the 
you know, offensive against workers' conditions, workers' pay. Um, that's really what's what's on the agenda. And I think we mentioned earlier, I mean, a, an aspect of this is that vast sums have been handed to big business through through you know the course of the pandemic in this in this country it's more than 300 billion dollars you have a national debt approaching one trillion dollars uh, now the issue is who's going to pay for it and you know the capitalist response is that it has to be workers young people uh, who are made to bear the brunt of this you know which we reject uh, entirely so it seems to me if you want to have elimination you have to have a return to some very heavy lockdown type arrangements that we've experienced previously is it is that part? Obviously, masks and other things, but is that what you're advocating? I can make a couple of quick yep. points. I mean, I think, you know, there's the issue of, of lockdowns, but there are many other, you know, weapons to combat COVID. Uh, one of the most basic is that you need a mass testing system which identifies who is infected and where the virus is transmitting. What we've seen. Um, really over the past five months as the governments lifted all restrictions in December when Omicron had already arrived in the country. Uh, they knew that the overwhelming number of, of cases which has crashed the PCR testing system, which they uh, welcomed. And now you really don't have any testing tracing whatsoever in this country. So we can give you the official uh, figures of infections, which are stark, you know, many days, more than 50,000 a day, but really no one knows how widespread the virus is. Um, and I think the reason for that is that, I mean, this is spreading at workplaces, it's spreading at schools. They don't want people to know about that uh, because they want to keep these places open. So if we had, you know, universal testing, uh, high quality contact tracing, universal masking with N95 masks uh, that would rapidly cut the transmission. And then, yes, you know, lockdown measures were required, certainly the uh, turn to uh, online learning when there's transmission. I mean, we say you can't risk one child dying of, of, of COVID. Um, it's completely unacceptable from the standpoint of, you know, the interests of, of ordinary people. Um, and, you know, the lockdowns we advocate um, would include shutdowns of, of non-essential businesses, which was never carried out uh, in this country. But, you know, we insist that that would require uh, full compensation for affected small business people, along with workers who are off the job um, and for parents. And again, you know, the issue comes back to the question of, of who controls society's wealth. I mean, there's plenty of, of money there. Um, the billionaires I think Max has the figures. The billionaires have made more money over the past two years than ever before. If that wealth was, you know, reappropriated and, and controlled by the working class, uh, lockdowns and other measures would be entirely viable with full financial assistance for those affected. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about tax. So while we wait for the revolution, um, what, what sort of tax uh, in, sort of both income, wealth, inheritance, I don't know. What, what, have, what have you got on your wish list in terms of changes to the taxation system? Max, you want to go with that one? Sorry, I think oh. I was just having yep. a mild technical problem. No worries. Uh, I mean, you know, firstly, I mean, we do advocate for 
mass taxation of the of of the wealthy, both income and wealth tax. Um, and I mean, you know, these would be part of various transitional demands. I mean, the point that we make clear, I think, in in our election campaign is that, I mean, one can say, what well, wait for the revolution. I mean, we do fight for votes, fight to to get in, but our role if we got into uh, the Senate, into Parliament, would be to expose all the kind of, uh, you know, grubby backroom deals that are organised in one form or another. And we would put forward various demands, including, you know, mass tax, uh, I mean, I mean, one could conceive of a number of different different ways. I mean, 100% tax over, you know, every dollar earned over a million or something like that. I mean, these are the type of positions we would uh, put forward and advocate. But such a program, such a policy uh, is not going to be able to be implemented, as I say, through the parliamentary system in, in one form or another. I mean, it has to be uh, through you know, workers seizing the means of production. It's 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 just not viable. I mean, every single, uh, you know, the whole parliamentary system is, it's a capitalist parliamentary system and it is derived for that continued process uh, of profit to the, to the top end of society. But certainly we do advocate for mass tax of both income and wealth of the super rich. So you think it would be easier to organise a workers' revolution where they're seizing the means of production rather than, uh, organising people to vote for a, a socialist equality party or, or similar to vote for uh, massive tax changes. You think you, you think the revolution is more likely and and uh, easier to achieve? Is that is that it? I think uh, I think just it's not a question of what's more likely or not more likely. It's what the only way forward. I mean, there's not. There's not a kind of middle ground or other option. You have capitalist barbarism and mass austerity, or you have revolution. Uh, I mean, the, the way forward, as, as I said, I mean, it's only possible through that process. So I guess in that sense, you know, one can say, oh, we'll advocate for super tax on the rich. I mean, look, that's been a position that may have been put forward at one time or another. Um but uh, but certainly, I mean, it's not. It's just not possible. I mean, maybe Oscar can make some more points. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, his, his, historically, I mean, that perspective was associated with voting for the Labor Party. You know, you'd vote for Labor, um, and you'd hope that they'd implement some sort of reforms which would at least ameliorate uh, the plight of, of the working class. I mean, that period is long gone, um, and pining for it is not going to bring it. Bring it back. I mean, what we saw in this country in the 1980s was that it was Labor uh, and the trade unions which implemented the sweeping economic restructuring, which in the United States was carried out by uh, Ronald Reagan and in Britain by uh, Margaret Thatcher. I mean, Hawke and Keating deregulated the economy. Uh, they presided over the destruction of, of hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs and they set in place uh, really the union enforced architecture for a continuous suppression of wages, onslaught on conditions, uh, which is carried through to the present. Now, that wasn't an accident. I mean, that was the logical culmination of the nationalist and pro-capitalist policies of, of or program of labour and the trade unions. I mean, what we've explained is that we now live really in an era of, of globally mobile capital um, 
production itself has been globalised and a, a perspective of, of an earlier period of, of placing pressure on nationally based governments, corporations to extract certain social concessions is, is finished. Um, you know, if that was done in any one place, they just uh, move production elsewhere. And that, that's also found expression in just the complete transformation of, of the Labor Party. I mean, there's, you know, you really can't make a serious argument that this party has anything to do with the interests of, of the working class. I mean, what's Albanese said in this election campaign, you know, Labor would ensure productivity, productivity, productivity. It's almost like a mantra. Um, what does that concretely mean? means intensifying the exploitation of, of the working class, doing everything to boost corporate profits. Um, and the trade unions have, have signalled and demonstrated um, through decades of experience that they'll enforce this agenda. Um, you know, we could go on with different examples, but I think, I mean, the perspective of, of sort of national reform uh, is over. That finished long ago. It wasn't just here. It's a universal process, you've got new labour in Britain, uh, the Democrats have severed any connection with social reform. Uh, and so the question is, the, uh, the, the working class building a political movement on a new foundation, you know, we, we say workers can only advance their interests um, based on an international perspective aimed at uniting their struggles around the world. I mean, the working class is an international class, it faces the same issues everywhere and it has the same fundamental uh, interests. But you're, so you're, quite, think, you're quite pessimistic, though, about the working class being uh, harnessed to to make change through the parliament, it seems to be. You, you don't see that as a possibility, really. That it's, it's, Yeah, I mean, it's not mm. the working class, it's, it's the parliament. Um, right, but if the working the class, the if the majority voted for enough people, you could transform the parliament into a parliament for the working class, but you don't see that as possible it seems you, you you don't see a bunch you know the socialist equality party and similar parties uh, getting enough votes to have power in the parliament and bringing about the change into a society that you would like you, you it, it seems to me no. you, you don't see that as possible no we, we think that's very unlikely i mean certainly we stand uh, in the elections but we do so from the standpoint of uh, raising the fundamental issues that confront the working class and seeking to develop its but, political. But, but if you can convince, movement. if you think you can convince people to to revolt and forcibly take the means of production, that would be a harder argument than forcing than, than convincing them to vote for people like you to do it through do you know gradual change through the parliament. I would have thought. I, I, no, I mean, no. I think the point the point is that. Parliament is a capitalist institution. I mean, people yes. vote once every three years to decide which of the capitalist parties will oversee their exploitation. Workers yeah. don't get a vote on whether they're going to get the sack, have their wages cut. Um, and really, you know, what we're seeing is um, it's always been a capitalist democracy, one uh, geared towards the interests of the banks, big business. But even bourgeois democracy is decaying. Mm. I mean, the parliamentary framework is, is breaking down. Our party was federally registered for many years. Um, we were deregistered just prior to this election because Labor and the coalition came together to pass anti-democratic electoral laws, mm. uh, tripling 
the number of party uh, members a party required to be uh, registered under conditions of, of the lockdowns um, and the like. You know, one could cite many other examples. Frankly, you know, if the SCP and, and its candidates were elected to parliament such that they could form a government, parliament would be shut down um, and the state would intervene. I think just on this issue of pessimism, we're not pessimistic at all. I mean, what we see is that the working class is being propelled into major struggle. We're seeing that internationally and also the first signs of it here. Um, and actually the ability of, of Labor and the trade unions to contain social opposition um, is now very limited. I think many people uh, recognise that there's no difference between Labor, the Liberals, uh, the Greens and the like. So our, our perspective is that not to wait for a revolution, but that the working class needs to build its own political movement. At this point, it's completely disenfranchised. Um, and we say a leadership needs to be developed within the working class ahead of the outbreak of, of mass struggles um, to take those forward and provide them with the, the socialist perspective that they require. Mm. Yep. Okay, well, I think probably some of the other questions I had, you'd probably answer them in a way, like, for instance, one of my impressions from the the whole um, campaign for this election is just the way that the, the Murdoch press and now joined by the Costello press and the Stokes press um, and with a sort of a cowed ABC, um, uh, really we... You know, our culture is dominated by the agenda that those people set, and we're really suffering from not having a good, strong, independent media that's allowing uh, and encouraging the sharing of ideas properly. We're getting a very biased presentation to us. Um, so I was going to ask you, what's your solution? But I guess you would say, well, those media companies are just then owned by the people. and that solves that is, is, is that is that right yeah and i think the very process of the kind of more and more control of the media by large corporations and and, and individuals let's not forget that elon musk recently bought twitter i mean it's literally every new form of media where there could be possible open democratic discussion is being shut down and controlled that itself is a response to the growing concern that the ruling elite has over the developing struggles of the working class. I mean, the attacks on democratic rights are themselves bound up with yeah, the deep concerns of growing class struggle. So certainly, I mean, we we do advocate for uh, freedom of the press, you know, open journalism. I mean, that's why one of the pillars of our election and and all our previous elections is the demand for the freedom of Julian Assange. I mean, if you want to talk about the personification of, uh, you know, of the assault on journalism, the assault on, uh, you know, the truth, one only needs to look at Assange who exposed uh, the crimes of the United States and now is paying for it by being imprisoned in uh, Belmarsh Prison, the Guantanamo Bay of the UK, in which he's being effectively tortured, not given anywhere near anything that resembles a, free, uh, a fair trial, more like the star chambers of old. Uh, and is being charged under the, the Espionage Act, which if if uh, extradited and convicted in the US on espionage, then that would mean that effectively any publication that published any of the findings of WikiLeaks could be similarly charged 
under such circumstances. And he's been abandoned by, you know, whole layers, uh, particularly journalistic layers, uh, after the uh, spurious claims, you know, sexual assault claims emerged. Uh, it was never charged, but, you know, he was abandoned by a whole section uh, of not only journalists but layers of the upper middle class um, parliamentarians uh, and effectively opened the doors for the conspiracy uh, that was organised by the Australian, the UK, the Swedish, the Ecuadorian, and above all, the United States government for his extraction from the uh, from the uh, Ecuadorian embassy and now in prison in Belmarsh. So, I mean, I think our fight for the freedom of Assange is intimately bound up with the question of democratic rights uh, and the question of you know free and open journalism. Mm. Uh, China uh, thoughts on China? Just another capitalist system by another name is or how, how do you talk about china to people what's you what's your um thoughts on china well we don't support the ccp uh china is a capitalist country um you know china uh has i think the second largest number of billionaires in the world through the super exploitation of its working class uh that being said we also don't support the anti-Chinese rhetoric that has developed in this country, above all, a product of the United States who is seeking to drive to war against China, um, as it is with Russia. Uh, and, you know, this type of rhetoric is utilised uh, to soften the population up or an attempt to soften the population up for the question of war. That's what's uh, behind the developments recently in the Solomon Islands, in which, you know, the country organized a, a security pact with china i mean supposedly you know australia you know, the australian government defends sovereign nations but when it comes to the solomon islands uh when it interrupts the uh geostrategic interests of the united states and australian imperialism then it becomes as penny wong said the greatest it's the greatest security threat th since the second world war so i just make the point we don't support the ccp uh, we don't support the Chinese regime, but we don't support the anti-Chinese rhetoric and the drive to war against China. We fight for the working class of China to unite with workers across the Southeast Asian region, across this whole Pacific region, uh, in, a, in a struggle, bubble against their own government, which uh, acts in the interests of the wealthy elite. And the other point I'll make on China, I mean, it is one of the slanders that is now coming out and one of the, uh, particularly around COVID, is the uh, you know real assault on on China's zero COVID policy? Uh, it is the only country that still has that policy. I mean, the number of infections is, I mean, uh, again, I don't have the exact numbers, are incredibly low. Um, you know, given that it is a country of you know the largest population on planet Earth of more than a billion people, uh, and there is demands, particularly in financial circles, uh, you know, for the complete reopening of the country, which would be, I mean, one can say devastating, and that's almost an underestimation. We're talking uh, millions upon millions, you know, hundreds of millions of infections, hundreds of thousands of deaths by conservative estimates. So certainly the uh, Chinese government and China is not uh, a communist country and is not someone that we support. But as I said, the anti-Chinese rhetoric is certainly also not what we uh, support. Mm. So, I mean, Oscar will to make some more points on that. I think those are the main uh, points. I mean, I think uh, 
again, I mean, these are very complex historical issues and obviously we've got limited time. I mean, there was a revolution in China. Uh, it did entail a significant social transformation, but it was deformed from the outset. You know, it was led by the Stalinists who based themselves on a nationalist perspective. It was very much based within the peasantry rather than the urban working class. Um, and if you look at what's taken place in China, really beginning with the capitalist restoration, uh, which started in the 1970s, um, again, it demonstrates that the Stalinist parties, such as, as the Chinese Communist Party, are not the real representatives of, of socialism, of communism. Um, they express the interests of a privileged bureaucracy. I think just the other point, yeah, so we, we advocate the development of a, an independent socialist movement of the working class in China uh, and elsewhere. But I think the, the point about uh, opposing the anti-China um, chauvinism which is being whipped up here is really critical. I mean, you mentioned the role of the press really for five or six years now. We've had just an endless stream of anti-China rhetoric, uh, claims about foreign agents and Chinese students being maligned uh, as such really a return to the McCarthyism of the 1950s and not just confined to the Murdoch press, but very much embraced, championed by the small L liberals at, at the ABC, um, Nine Media, formerly Fairfax, and the like. And I think, you know, what we're warning is that this is a wartime atmosphere that they're seeking to whip up. I mean, behind the backs of the population, Australia has been placed on the, the front lines of very advanced US preparations for conflict with China uh, that began under the Gillard Labor government, a Greensback government. It's continued under every government since, and it's a policy that's, again, universal, um, universally supported among Labor, the Liberals uh, and the Greens. So we're raising, you know, the necessity for an international anti-war movement uh, of the working class to counter this, and we're warning that... Um, the war drive has nothing to do with democracy or what Morrison is now speaking of, beating back an arc of autocracy. Uh, this is about securing the global uh, geopolitical and economic dominance of American imperialism against you know, Russia and China, which it views as its primary uh, threats. And the Australian ruling elite, which has its own predatory interests uh, in the Asia-Pacific region, is, is fully on board with that agenda, which does threaten nuclear war. Mm. So there's a um, there's always a, a sense that uh, socialism goes hand in hand with authoritarianism. I mean that's the sort of knee jerk reaction by the public is 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 that if you've got socialism or communism, then you've also got authoritarianism. Are there any examples around the world that um, you would say are um, you know, whether we're talking, I don't know, Venezuela or um, other places at different in, at different times in history where they've got close to a sort of an idealised socialist system without the authoritarian um, black mark associated with it. Any, any examples in history where you could point to people and say, look, this place at this point in time was kind of getting there. The only successful socialist revolution in history was the October 
Revolution in 1917. There you had the beginnings of the establishment of a workers' government, democratic control over the banks, corporations, factories. Uh, it was a system that, I mean, I mean, just to try and give an example of what occurred in Russia uh, at that time, uh, you know, I mean, this was a backward country, largely uh, based on the peasantry. You had uh, an illiteracy rate of about 90% of the country in 10 years. Uh, that The literacy program that was implemented turned that around. So it was, in fact, the opposite. So rather than 90% illiterate, you had 10% illiterate. You had a situation in which uh, uh, workers uh, and particularly uh, were given, uh, female workers were given the, the right to maternity leave, uh, the right to an abortion. There was the abolition of the death penalty for homosexuality. I mean, these type of things, we're talking 1917, didn't occur in any of the you know, so-called developed capitalist countries for literally decades later. And now, as you can see with Roe versus Wade in the United States being you know, repealed, even the basic right to an abortion uh, can be removed under a capitalist system under certain conditions. I mean, it, the, the fact is what was established in Russia was, uh, I mean, progressive to the highest level. In fact, it was such a world historic event that in fact influenced all of the developing struggles and strike action and fight for change by workers uh, across the world, including in this country, which led to the establishment of welfare states. Uh, I mean, there, there are many examples in, in that period of time. I mean, the, the, the critical factor in Russia, and I think this where, you know, we can return to uh, some of the fundamental questions, I mean, was that in Russia, you had socialism occur in in Russia, uh, there were not successful revolutions in other countries uh, around Europe, including in Germany. Fundamental reason for that was that a Bolshevik-style party, that is a party that uh, was fundamentally opposed to all expressions of opportunism, that is opportunism, the conception of, you know, trying to find a middle ground, something other than unrevolution, you know, making deals with capitalists you know, or bourgeois parties in one form or another. I mean, those that hadn't been established in other countries prior to revolutionary upsurge, uh, which which did occur uh, in 1919 in Germany, uh, 1921 as well, uh, as well as in, in the UK and other areas across Europe. So these uh, revolutionary movements without uh, a party, a conscious party at its head, uh, then were able to be betrayed, the counter-revolution was able to move in and suppress uh, the class struggle. I mean, the the, uh, the most tragic example of which uh, uh, was the establishment of Nazi Germany uh, in, in, in 1933, which led to uh, the greatest, some of the greatest crimes of the 20th century. So what is required is the establishment of a revolutionary party steeped in the lessons of history prior to the outbreak of struggle. Uh, and so that's what our party fights for. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, one of the critical aspects of this election campaign is for, you know, workers, young people, others to join the movement and take up this struggle uh, for revolution. Uh, I think that's a, a critical aspect of our program and perspective uh, because you cannot, and I think this is made clear, have socialism in one country as was put forward by the Stalinist bureaucracy, uh, which itself was kind of a dragging up of old, Menshevik conceptions, but 
you know, you can only establish uh, genuine socialism on an international basis, and that's what we fight for. Uh, and so I know that's, a, a, I guess, a roundabout way of answering your question, but hmm. these other countries, in one form or another, were not socialists. Uh, that's not saying that certainly uh, even in um, even under the degenerated worker state that was Stalinism, there weren't uh, incredible achievements through national property relations, nationalised property relations, uh, not least of which was a booming level of production that had not been seen in a country that was mainly made up of peasantry ever before. You also, because of those nationalised property relations, the workers who fought against the Nazi invasion um, that occurred in the Second World War were able to, in fact, break the bra- ba- sorry break the back of Nazi Germany. I mean, it, effectively causing an end to the Second World War and the liberation of the various concentration camps, uh, which I think was a really, I mean, profound achievement, which itself was a product of the Russian Revolution. So, I mean, those are some some preliminary points I can make on that. Mm. I'm kind of getting to the to the end of it here. So, um, in the chat room, good on you in there. There's been lots of uh, comments, and um, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen any along the way that you wanted to necessarily respond to. You're welcome um, if you like, but. Um, uh, um, yeah, I've sort of. I think I've got the picture of of where you guys sit, um, and um, if you've got, you know, Oscar, if you want to sort of some final words or a final pitch to people or whatever final words you want to give, you're welcome to now. If I could just quickly add a couple of points to what Max raised previously on the issue mm. of the Russian Revolution, um, I think just quickly. I mean, it's important to recognise what this represented in history. I mean, you'd had, beginning in 1914, uh, three years of war which had laid waste to Europe. I mean, what took place in uh, Russia is that the working class took political power. It did begin reorganising society uh, and the revolutionary struggles that uh, the Russian Revolution produced are what ultimately resulted in the end of of World War I. the response of, of the capitalist powers is instructive. I mean, what took place is you had, I believe, 14 imperialist armies sent to overthrow the Soviet government, the workers' government, uh, to aid fascistic right-wing forces in a brutal civil war. Uh, Winston Churchill, the great British Democrat, said it was necessary to strangle uh, the Bolshevik baby in its crib. Um, you know, so much for the democratic pretensions. But I think the fundamental point, you know, that I think needs to be stressed is that Stalinism was not socialism. It was not communism. Uh, It was its antithesis. I mean, the Stalinists represented the interests of a privileged bureaucracy, which emerged on the basis of, of the Soviet Union's isolation, its poverty. And what they put forward was a nationalist program, socialism in one country, They suppressed innumerable revolutions uh, internationally. Their policies created the conditions for Hitler to come to power. Again, it's a very complex and, um, you know, history to go through. But, you know, what we are is is the Trotskyist movement, which fought against the Stalinist betrayal of, of the Russian Revolution and advanced the socialist and internationalist perspective upon which that revolution had been based. And I think, you know, just the last point on that, if you want to 
know what Stalinism is, look at what it repressed. I mean, the Stalinists killed hundreds of thousands of, of genuine uh, communists, including above all the Trotskyists uh, in the late 1930s, in particular in the show trials, um, show trials which were again uh, cheered on by the democratic imperialist powers. And that culminated in the, the 1940 assassination of, of Leon Trotsky by a Stalinist agent. So I think, you know, we'd stress as, as strongly as we could or can that what existed in, in the Soviet Union under Stalin, what existed in China was not genuine socialism. Uh, it was the dominance of, of privileged bureaucracies that advanced a nationalist program and that ultimately restored uh, capitalism. I think just the last, very last word I'd raise is that I'd encourage everyone to read our election statement and to check out the World Socialist website. Um, I mean, we're raising the big historical issues confronting the working class. We have entered into a period of war, the threat of world war. There's the question of the pandemic, which we've reviewed. Um, and what we're seeing is that the working class is beginning to enter, enter into struggle. It's beginning to fight back. But we think it needs to build its own political party um, based on a socialist and, and revolutionary perspective. That's the only way to prevent war, uh, to take forward social rights um, and to advance the interests of, of the working class. So I definitely encourage everyone to, to check out our website, uh, the World Socialist website and our election statement. If I can make one final point, Trevor, as well, uh, also vote for us in the election. Uh, in the New South Wales Senate, you have to vote for uh, Group F, which is Oscar and myself, uh, above the line. You have to number one to six. So put us number one and then label any of the others however you'd like. Um, uh, in We also standing candidates uh, in Queensland. It's Group I. Uh, so I above the line. Uh, that's uh, Mike Head and John Davis. And then two to six for whoever else you want. Uh, and then Group Y. In, uh, in in Victoria, uh, which is uh, our candidates, Peter Byrne and Jason Wardle. Uh, and in addition to what uh, Comrade Oscar said, visit the WSWS.org. And if you'd like to get directly in contact with us, you can email us at sep at sep.org.au. Um, so you can get, uh, you know, ask us any questions. If you'd like more information, uh, we really welcome uh, any discussion or, or any further clarification. So thank you very much, Trevor. Very good. That's a good wrap-up. So, um, well, for those who uh, are new to this podcast who managed to find us via this SEP sort of YouTube channel or the other little um, bits of social media advertising you've done in the week leading up to this, um, hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Um we have all sorts of discussions, so it's very Australian. It's news and politics, sex and religion. So um, check us out. Nearly every Tuesday night around about 7.30 Brisbane time we kick off. And, um, yeah, if we've picked up a few listeners along the way, that's great as well. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Oscar. Thanks to everyone in the chat room. We'll be back next week with, uh, well, it'll be the um, sort of a, a rundown of what happened in the election. So that's what we'll be up to next week. So, Okay. Bye for now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and 
it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.